So Matthew chapter 4, a familiar uh, passage of Scripture for all of us, verses 1 through 11 says this, Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by God, or by the, dem- by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man should not live by bread alone but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, Again, it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test, Again, the devil took him to the very high mountain, to a very high mountain, and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give to you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. Let's pray. Father, we come before you once again to speak of your Christ. We come once again to speak of our Lord and Savior, the one who lived, died, and rose for our justification. We once again offer our time up to you. We pray that you will help preacher, that you will help the listener, and your spirit will accompany us during this time. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. So to do a recap of uh, what we've spoken about last week, um, if you... If you haven't been here, or if you've been coming here frequently, you know that we've been speaking of the person of Christ uh, and who he is in his being. And last week we uh, talked about the uh, the two doctrines related to the person of Christ, which are the hypostatic union and the communication of properties and attributes. And if you remember, the hypostatic union is the doctrine that says the eternal son united to himself a true human nature, that the eternal son united to himself a true human nature. As a result, the incarnate son is the one per is one person with two natures. Remember, it's not the Trinity who becomes incarnate. It's the second person of the Trinity who becomes incarnate, who adds to himself a true human nature. A person, remember when we spoke about uh, the hypostatic union, we defined what a person is and what a nature is. A person is what we are and a nature is who we are. Our nature dictates, it decides uh, what we do in our person, how we act in our person. Let me give an example. Uh, why don't you or why don't you have the ability to fly? Or why don't you have the ability to, when you bite, uh, uh, spew venom from your from your teeth? Because it is not of your nature to fly or to bite uh, and venom come out. Uh, those things are of the nature of birds, and those things are the nature of reptiles and and, and those type of animals, right? Uh, you have a human nature. All of what it means to be human, you possess. Okay. Um, so when we think about a nature, when we think about a person, um, a nature is not what speaks. It's the person that speaks, but we speak through our nature. As one theologian has said, a man may be thought of as a person who acts and a nature which decides the field in which it acts. 
So a person acts and a nature decides the field in which that person acts. Christ is one person who acts through two natures. That's important. One person who acts through two natures, which leads to the second doctrine that we considered uh, the last Lord's Day, which is the doctrine of the communication of properties and attributes, which means Christ acts according to both natures, that Christ acts according to both natures. It teaches that the attributes of both divine and human nature were ascribed to the single person. So when we say the communication of properties and attributes allows us to say things like Christ suffered or uh, Christ died, Christ died for my sins. But when we think about that, uh, we are speaking improperly in one sense because we know that Christ is truly God and truly man, right? But we can say Christ died because it is the person of Christ that died. But when we go more and deeper, we know that it is Christ according to his human nature that suffers, that dies, that uh, do, does all those things. So when we say, um, again, is improper saying to say that the human nature of Christ did this for me and the divine nature of Christ did that for me. But rather, our redemption is a single act that is performed according to one of the two natures. That the attributes of each nature, because they are united to the person of the Son, are predicated of him as the Son. In other words, what is true of each nature is true of him, since he, as the Son, is the active agent in both natures. That's why we can say Christ died for me, without qualification, unless we speak of the hypostatic union and the, and the theology proper of the nature of God, right? But we can say, we can preach, and we preach regularly, that Christ did this, that Christ did that, without qualification of the two natures. Now, we want to continue our study in Christology, and we want to stretch our thinking a bit more when we consider the person of Christ. And I want to begin our time with one question that I'll give us our, our points for the evening, and then we'll get into our lesson. One question I want you to consider, and I want you, if you want to, write down and to answer. And the question is this, could Jesus Christ have sinned? Could Jesus Christ have sinned? Or we could put it another way. Was Christ able to sin? Was Jesus Christ, who is truly God and truly man, was he able to sin? Was he capable of sinning? And to help us answer that question, I have three points I would want us to consider. The first is the impeccability of Christ. Number one, the impeccability of Christ Number two, the temptation of Christ. Number two, the temptation of Christ. And number three, why does this matter? Number one, the impeccability of Christ. Number two, the temptation of Christ. And number three, why does this matter? And this will all help us. So there's three, those three, um, points will help us answer that main question of could Jesus Christ have sinned? Maybe you've never thought of that before. Um, so let's see, let's, let's see, uh, what answers you come up with. And if, let's see if your answer is similar to uh, my answer. The doctrine of the impeccability of Christ, this is point one. The doctrine of the impeccability, impeccability of Christ has been one that's divided many, even in reformed circles. Men like, and when I say these names, I'm not saying these names to bash them. Um, But I'm giving these guys an example and putting this in a context um, so we can understand uh, how this doctrine is divides some even in the reform uh, camp. Men like R.C. Sproul, 
Charles Hodge, <clears throat> Sinclair Ferguson, and others have claimed since Christ is truly human and since he was tempted in every way man was, yet without sin, then naturally it follows that Christ, according to his human nature, was able to sin. Let me say that one more time. Since Christ is truly human, and since he was tempted the same way man was, then it follows that Christ was able to sin. Since he is truly human, he must be able to sin, right? In other words, if Christ was not able to sin, and this is a big argument, if Christ is not able to sin, then his temptations were not real or genuine. How can you say that Christ is not able to sin? Christ is tempted. What's the point of his temptations then? Are they real? Are they genuine? Is he really being tempted? And also, if Christ was not able to sin, then he's not truly human. If Christ is not able to sin, then he's not truly human. Charles Hodge writes this. This sinlessness of our Lord, however, does not amount to absolute impeccability. It was not a, it was not a, if, if he was a true man, Christ, if Christ was a true man, then he must have been capable of sinning. Temptation implies the possibility of sin. If from the constitution of this person, it was impossible for Christ to sin, then his temptation was unreal and without effect. And he cannot sympathize with his people. You see what Charles Hodge is doing. He's saying that, well, if Christ is truly human, if he, if, if he truly sympathizes with his people, then he must be able to sin. That's his argument. And it seems from the, from a basic surface level, without understanding the doctrine or knowing the doctrine of the impeccability of Christ, the, the, the concern that Charles Hodge brings up seems plausible. That if Christ is truly human, then he must be uh, uh, truly uh, tempted. Those temptations were real and genuine. Then he must be able to sin. Since Christ assumed a true human nature, then it must require that he has the possibility to sin. Since Christ was tempted, then it follows that in his temptation, he could have gave in. If the temptation was real, if it was genuine, then Christ could have gave in to those temptations and he could have sinned or else it wouldn't be genuine. It wouldn't be a real temptation. He wouldn't be truly human. Well, in, in light of these plausible arguments without understanding the doctrine or knowing the doctrine of, of impeccability, what do we do this evening or what do we want to do this evening is examine those arguments uh, and others and walk away with this one confession. We want to examine what Charles Haas says. We want to examine the true human nature of Christ, the temptation of Christ, and we want to leave and walk away with this confession that Jesus Christ was unable to sin. That Jesus Christ was unable to sin, even according to his human nature. That it was impossible for Jesus Christ, according, even according to his human nature, to sin. And this leads us, saints, to the doctrine of the, of the impeccability of Christ. Now, you might ask, uh, what is the impeccability of Christ? It seems like a big word. Um, it's really not. It's a Latin word that we get that simply means without or incapable of sinning. So when we say the impeccability of Christ, what we mean by that is Christ was unable or was not capable of sinning. It was impossible for Christ to sin. So 
I'm going to be speaking about, I'm going to be saying that word frequently, impeccability, and when I say that, think of Christ is not able to sin. Impossible for Christ to sin. Um, now, notice what we're not saying, saints, when we talk about the impeccability of Christ. Notice what we're not saying. We are not questioning whether or not Jesus ever sinned. Okay, that's a that's an important to, to uh, lay out, that we're not questioning if Jesus Christ ever sinned. Because even those who say that Christ was able to sin affirm that Jesus Christ never sinned. All the Orthodox believe that Jesus Christ never, ever sinned in his life. There was never an inclination. Um, rather, when we speak about the impeccability of Christ, the question is not whether Christ sinned. Rather, the question is whether Christ could have sinned. So not whether Christ sinned, but could Christ have sinned? That's the question in hand. Was there ever in Christ an inclination to sin? Did Christ ever wrestle with sin? In other words, just given the right temptation, could Christ have sinned? That's one question I would like to impose to Charles Hodge. Just given the right temptation, could Jesus Christ give in? Could he have sinned? And saints, we must dogmatically answer in the negative. We must say, no, uh, heck no. All of those, all of those, all of those, um, various ways in which we try to, uh, say no. Jesus Christ, uh, in his, in his person, it was impossible for him to sin. It was impossible for Christ in his mind to sin. It, it was impossible for Christ, given the right temptation, to sin. So, in this point, I want to lay out the reasons why Christ was incapable of sinning and affirm the doctrine of the impeccability of Christ. And we'll do that in three subpoints. Subpoint number one, the impeccability of Christ is proven by the union of the two natures of Christ. The impeccability of Christ is proven by the two natures of Christ. We learned last week of this doctrine, which is the hypostatic union, which says the person of the son added to himself a human nature, a true human nature. Our confession says the union of these two uh, distinct natures were inseparably joined together in one person without confusion, composition um, or conversion. Meaning when Christ, when the second person of the Trinity added to himself a human nature, it was without mixture. That the human nature does not mix into the divine nature, or the divine nature does not mix into the human nature. That there's no, there's no crossing over of natures. But these natures are, are distinct, are in the person of Christ. In other words, we must distinguish between the two natures of Christ, but we cannot completely separate the two natures of Christ. And there might have been some, some confusion last week when I said we must distinguish uh, but not separate. And what I mean by that is when we say we must not separate, we must not pull them so far apart to where we create two persons, which is which many can do. Uh, when we speak about Christ according to his human nature, we can place so much emphasis on his human nature alone that we can make him out to be a separate person. Remember, Christ is one person with two natures. Who, um, and who were inseparably joined together. Uh, so the one who acts saints through the two natures, the one who does things through the two natures is a divine person. Christ is the God man, not the man God. It is a, a divine person who acts, who talks, who thinks, who added to himself a true human nature. Christ is the God man. And this truth proves 
Christ's impeccability. Jesus Christ, first and foremost, is a divine person. He's not a human. He wasn't a human person, right? Who, who infused his divine nature. But rather, he is a divine person who added to himself a human nature. I didn't add this last week, but it is a divine person who gives personality to the human nature of Christ. Christ is one person with two natures, and this person is a divine person. Jesus Christ, although he possesses a human nature, is truly God. And since he is truly God, then it is impossible, impossible for Christ to sin since God is holy. God cannot sin. We must all affirm that. Now, those who impose the impeccability of Christ, those who say, no, no, Christ was able to sin. They say, well, we aren't saying Christ, according to his divine nature, could sin. We all know that Christ, according to his divine nature, couldn't sin. But what we are saying is Christ, according to his human nature, was able to sin. You see what they're doing? They're saying Christ, not according to his divine nature, could sin, but Christ, according to his human nature, could sin. But saints, that question doesn't take into account the union of the two natures and the one who is acting in that union. It is a person of Christ who acts. It is a divine person who acts. Uh, WGT Shed makes this point. He says, when the divine, when the logos, uh, the second person of the Trinity, goes into union with a human nature so as to constitute a single person with it, he becomes responsible for all that his person does through the instrumentality of this nature. So Jesus Christ sin, incarnate God would sin. What is he, what is he saying? He's saying that when the second person of the Trinity added to himself a human nature, he was responsible for what the whole person did. When we view this way, saints, it, the possibility of Christ sinning seems blasphemous. When we consider that Jesus Christ's person is a divine person, when we say that, well, no, Jesus Christ could have sinned, that's, that's blasphemous. Because God cannot sin. It is impossible for God to sin. The reason is because the divine nature of Christ is the base of his person. That's important to write down if you're taking notes. The divine nature of Christ is the base of his person. And as I've said, he's not the man God. He is the God man. It is not the humanity of Christ that's the base of his person. He's, it's the divine nature of Christ that's the base of his person. And because Christ is truly God, who united to his person a true human nature, there is absolutely no possibility or potential that Christ could have sinned since he was uh, uh, infinite and the eternal God having a divine nature. A.W. Pink makes this point, quote, Utterly impossible was it then for the God-man to sin. To affirm the contrary is to be guilty of the most awful blasphemy. It is irrelevant uh, speculation to discuss what the human nature of Christ might have done if he had been alone. We'll, we'll discuss that right now. But it was never alone. The human nature of Christ was never alone. The, in other words, the human nature of Christ was never floating off somewhere in space. And then Christ says, let me grab that and, and let me add it to myself. The human nature of Christ never had ex- an existence apart from the human nature being d- united to the divine nature or to, to the person of Christ. It was never alone. It never had a separate existence. From the first moment of its being, it was united to a divine person. The human nature of Christ was never by itself. 
if the human nature of Christ was by itself, it, if it was separate and left alone apart from the divine person, then yeah, he could have sinned. But it was impossible for the human, for the human nature of Christ was never by itself and never had an existence apart from being united from the divine nature of Christ. <clears throat> and the Bible, saints, supports this point. Christ was God manifest in the flesh, as for, as First Timothy 3.16 says. God manifest in the flesh, not man manifested and, and, and turned into some sort of superman, and he's God. Matthew 1.23, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. Emmanuel meaning God with us. So when one would look at Christ uh, 2,000 years ago, when, when Christ was walking the streets of Jerusalem, they were looking at God manifested in the flesh. It was the incarnate Son. It was the second person of the Trinity who took to himself a true human body and a true human rational soul. Again, uh, Christ is a divine person who added to his person a human, na- a true human nature. And since God is incapable of sinning, then the person of Christ, even according to his human nature, is incapable of sinning. You see, saints, when Satan was, t- was tempting Christ, and we read this in uh, uh, Matthew 4, when Satan tempted Christ, he didn't say, according to your human nature, turn these stones and make them to bread. He was speaking to the person of Christ. He wasn't speaking simply to the human nature of Christ because many would like to say, well, it was simply uh, Christ could have sinned, but only, only according to his uh, humanity. But that doesn't follow with the temptation of Christ itself. For Satan was speaking to a person, not a human nature. Whatever the person did was responsible. So if Christ would have sinned, who gets stoned? Not the human nature of Christ. The God-man gets stoned. The God-man dies. If, if Christ was to sent, if he was sent in prison, was, would the human nature somehow be sent to prison? No, because human natures don't exist apart from persons. Natures don't exist apart from persons. So it would be the person of Christ who would be sitting in jail. Thereby, we would say, God sinned. That would be impossible. So it is the person of Christ who, who is, who we are to consider when we are thinking of the impeccability of Christ, um, and not just simply his human nature. Because if we say that Christ sinned, uh, uh, then we're saying that God sinned, since he is truly God. Second point, or sub point number two. The impeccability of Christ is proved by the two wills of Christ. The impeccability of Christ is proved by the two wills of Christ. It is properly orthodox to confess Christ is one person with two natures. And seeing that he has two natures, then Christ possesses two wills. One will according to his divine nature and another will according to his human nature. Some examples of this we see in scripture is uh, Luke chapter 22 verse 42. It says saying, Father, this is Christ, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. John six thirty eight, For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of one who sent me. We see Christ speaking of the distinction between wills and wills here. So the two wills of Christ is explicitly seen in Holy Scripture. Now, we have to ask, what does the two wills of Christ 
have to do with Christ not being able to sin? What is the connection between Christ's two wills and Christ not being able to sin? Well, if we argue that Jesus Christ could have sinned, then a problem emerges regarding the relationship between Christ's human will and Christ's divine will. Remember, the divine will of Christ is not just Christ's will according to his divine nature, but it's his will that's in line with the Father and the Holy Spirit. It's not just simply the second person of the Holy Trinity's will, but it is also the will of the Father and the will of the Holy Spirit. The de- the, so when we think about the relationship of the human and divine will of Christ, I think the definition of faith of the, sec- of the sixth ecumenical council sums it up best. It says, and these two natural wills are not contrary to one or the other, as the impious heretics assert. But his human will, hear this, follows... Uh, that and not and not that and not as resistant or reluctant, but rather is subject to the divine and omnipotent will. In other words, the human will of Christ is subservient to the divine will of Christ. The human will of Christ follows the divine will of Christ. There's never a there's never in Christ a dilemma where we have his two wills. His human will wanting to do this, and we see a strong inclination there, and then his divine will wanting to do this, and we see a, a, a battle going on. But rather, what we see in scripture, and what we see from church history and all the orthodox, that the human will of Christ comes underneath and follows the divine will of Christ. Mark Jones says this, the human will cannot be contrary to the divine will of Christ, but only subject to it. In other words, the human will of Christ never acts, hear this, never acts independently apart from the divine will of Christ. The human will of Christ never acts independently apart from the divine will of Christ. W.G.T. Shedd makes this wonderful observation. The infant, or the finite will never antagonizes the infinite will, but obeys it invariably and perfectly. If this should be, if this should, for an instance, for instance, cease to be the case, then there will be a conflict in the self-consciousness of Jesus Christ. Hear this, similar to that in the self-consciousness of the Apostle Paul. He's making a connection here. If the divine, if the two wills of Christ were somehow, um, if there was some sort of conflict in Christ, then Christ would be similar to the Apostle Paul. When the Apostle, uh, he too could say, the good that I do, I do not. But the evil which I do not, that I do. It is no more that I do it, but sin that dwelleth in me. O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me? Romans 7, uh, Romans chapter 7, verses 19, 20, and 24. But there is no such utterance as this from the lips of the God-man. Christ is not schizophrenic in his in, in relation to his will or with respect to his will. Mind you, Paul was not schizophrenic either. Um, on the contrary, there is the claim, uh, there is a calm inquiry in Christ. Which of you, con- uh, uh, which of you convicts me of sin? And the confident affirmation of St. John, in him there was no sin. There is an utter abs- absence of, of a personal confession of sin in any form whatsoever 
ever in the conversion or conversation or prayers of Christ. Christ never personally prayed for himself with respect to sin. He never said, Father, forgive me for my sins. Ever. Because there was never sin found in him. And we'll get to the the definition of what sin is. But Christ, according to his human nature, never desired to sin or never desired the possibility to sin. Why? Because his will is always aligned with the divine will. That's why. Thirdly, the impeccability of Christ is proved by the person of Christ's human nature. The, the, the impeccability of Christ is proved by the person of Christ's human nature. Hey, Ray, can you shut that door, brother? <clears throat> uh, human nature. When the second person of the Trinity added to himself, and this is a really big point, guys, added to himself a true human nature, that human nature that was added to the person of the Son was like and unlike ours. Let me say that one more time. The human nature that that the eternal Son added to himself was like and unlike ours. Christ was like us with every respect to his human body and rational soul. Christ took on all of our common infirmities. What are our common infirmities? He got tired. He got hungry, right? He needed to sleep. He was weary. All of those things. But going beyond that, Christ had a human mind, a human soul, and a human will. But Christ's human nature is also unlike ours. Because Christ's human nature was not corrupted. There's the difference. Christ's human nature was not corrupted like ours. He doesn't have a, quote, as many would like to say, sin nature. Mind you, there's no such thing, but he doesn't have a sin nature. The reason is because, and and this is the reason why Christ doesn't have a, quote, sin nature. The reason is because sin is not essential to who we are as as humans. Meaning, when we ask, what does it mean to be human? It is improper to add sin to those things that constitute our humanity. Sin is what our corrupted human nature does, not what it is. And this this argument really goes back to the first creation, or, or creation of man. When God created Adam, he didn't create Adam with sin. So sin is not essential to our humanity. It's what our corrupt nature does. It's not what it is. And the reason why we sin, saints, is because we lost what Adam lost. We lost that original righteousness. Our human nature, our nature is not righteous no more. It's not upright no more. And what happens when you lose uprightness and when you, you, when you lose righteousness? All you can do is sin. That's what, our, that's what our nature is. What we had in Adam, we lost. And without righteousness, all we do is sin. However, Christ's human nature was not deprived of righteousness. He was not deprived of righteousness. But Christ, when Christ was born, he was born in a fallen world, but he was not fallen himself. He was utterly different than the humans that he saw on the earth. <laughs> he did not have a human nature like them with the respect of his nature was not corrupted. He did not have uh, the lack of original righteousness. He was upright. Now, some reject this uh, idea 
and they say that sin is essential to what it means to be human. That no, no, what it means to be human, it means that we sin. We are sinners. And to say that, and if those who say that, I say a couple things. Um, all those who possess a fallen nature, which is the entire human race, are guilty before God, are they not? All humanity is guilty before God. Why? Because they are corrupted. They are sinners, right? In other words, no one possesses a fallen human nature who is not also guilty before God. Now, here's the argument. It doesn't make sense how the eternal son of God could add to his divine person a morally fallen human nature. How is that even possible? How can he be a divine person and add to himself a corrupted human nature? Doesn't make sense. That would mean that Christ would have to redeem himself. If Christ added to himself a human nature that was corrupted, then he would have to redeem himself. He would have to pay for the sins of himself and not just and all, and the rest and the rest of his elect. Also, if sin is essential to humanity, and if so we say that no, Christ had to take, when he took on uh, this human nature, sin accompanied with it, how do we make sense of 2 Corinthians 5.21? For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might be the, become the righteousness of God. Secondly, I would say if sin or the ability to sin is essential to our humanity, then we will be sinners in heaven. We will be human in heaven. So if sin is essential to our humanity, then it must mean that in heaven we will, have, we will be able to sin. That's not the case. Mind you, if that's the case, then, uh, then we, ha- we don't have a wonderful hope to look forward to if that is the case. If sin is essential to our humanity, that must mean in heaven we, are gonna, we, will, have, we will be humans but with the possibility to sin. And saints... Hey, I think A.W. Pink says, sums this up nicely. He says, while the mediator was commissioned to die, when Jesus Christ, he was commissioned to die, he was never commissioned to sin. He was commissioned to die. He was commissioned to suffer. He was commissioned to take on the common infirmities that constitute our humanity. But he was never commissioned to sin. God never divinely decreed Christ to sin, ever. The human nature of Christ was permanent, Uh, permitted to function freely and normally so and that goes with when people say well if christ is not able to sin that he has no free will that's not the case christ was permitted to function freely and utterly hence he was wearied he wept but to sin hear this sin is not a normal act of human nature sin is not an act a normal act of human nature so when we think about Christ and we think about the human nature that he added to himself, we, not, we are never to think that uh, he added to himself a human nature that was corrupted by sin. But he added to himself the human nature, or, or he added to himself a nature that humans were originally supposed to be. That's what he added. So we can say that Christ was truly human in every sense of the word. Truly human. And one day we will be truly human, but more so we will take on, uh, we will take, we will conform more to the image of Christ and be like him. We will not be able to sin uh, when we get to, uh, 
our final destination, the new heavens and new earth. And lastly, the doctrine of the impeccability of Christ is proved by Scripture. Uh, Jesus says in eight, uh, John eight forty six, which one of you convicts me of sin? Which one of you convicts me of sin? If I tell you the truth, why do you not believe me? Remember, saints, that sin is not just the end of 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 what we do, right? So when we when we're, we're for instance, um, let's say we we're on a diet and we we're doing very good, and uh, and this is I'm using this very improperly, but we're on a diet and we're doing very good, and then we eat a hamburger. And we think that once we ate the hamburger, man, I sinned against myself. So we usually think the effects, the final conclusion, the final state is when I sin. But that's not what Christ says at the Sermon on the Mount. Remember what he says? He says that anyone who looks at a woman with lust commits adultery in his heart. So sin begins in the heart. It's not just the effects and, 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 and what we do, but it's how we think. It's how we operate. Uh, and that's why Christ can tell the Pharisees, which one of you convicts me of sin? Not just the things that you see, but the things that you don't see. The things that are done in the dark, so to speak. You can't convict me of anything. Hebrews seven twenty six. For it, it was fitting that we should have such a high priest. And hear this. Holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. One, uh, uh, first John three, five, and you know that he appeared in order to take sins and in him, there is no sin. So when we think about the sinlessness of Christ, we aren't to think of Christ and him never performing an act of sin, but rather him never in, in internally having any inclination to sin. There was never struggle in Christ to sin. And he never externally sinned, but he was sinless in every sense of the word. He was truly sinless. Let's look at our next point. That is the temptation of Christ. So how are we to view the temptation of Christ in light of all that what we have said? Since Christ was not able to sin, how are we to think about the temptation of Christ? Now, many who oppose the impeccability of Christ do so based on Christ's temptation alone. They say, if Christ was not able to sin, then what's the point of his temptation? They say, in order for Christ's temptation to be a real and genuine temptation, then he must have been able to sin. In other words, how can you have a real temptation if there is no real possibility of sinning and falling? You guys understand the argument? So how do we respond to that question in light of Christ's impeccability? Well, I will say at the very outset that I don't have all the answers because it is a profound mystery how we can, we can read in Scripture that Christ was un, unable to sin, but also he's tempted, right? Um, but I think we can make a good crack at, at, at harmonizing the two. Was Christ's temptation a real and genuine temptation? Saints, we have to affirm that Christ's temptation was real based on what Scripture alone says. As Scripture is our final rule of authority of faith, that even in light of Christ not being able to sin, that Christ's temptation was real, that it was genuine. However, in order to understand that, we must consider what it means to be tempted. 
what it means to be tempted. And we have belief saints that temptation means that we have this internal struggle with sin. That's what we think of temptation. We think there's, there's this internal struggle of good and evil in us. And nine times out of 10, uh, evil triumphs over the good. And then we sin. So when we say, man, I'm really being tempted today. There's some sort of internal conflict that's happening in us. But in reality, temptation means a test or a trial with an intended good or bad outcome. And the Bible frequently uses the word temptation in the external sense to describe trials and tests a person goes through, not to describe their inner feelings in response to those tests. The Bible, again, the Bible speaks, when it speaks of temptation, speaks of temptation in an external sense, not internal sense, and not the response to those internal feelings. Example, when Israel was tested by God, when God tested Abraham, when the Pharisees tested Christ, all refer to an external temptation. So when we think of the temptation of Christ, our Lord was tested by the devil, but there was never anything in him that answered to those temptations. Let me say that one more time. When Christ was tempted by the devil, there was never anything in Christ that answered to those temptations. As one theologian says, there was no Velcro that could stick internally in Christ when he was tempted. There was nothing that the devil could latch onto when Satan tempted Christ in the wilderness. We can't sympathize with Christ, saints. That's why we must remain. Just as we have a creator-creature distinction, there is a human-to-human distinction when we think about Christ with respect to his humanity, that he is human uh, in in some senses like us, but in a very other sense, um, Christ isn't human. Um, He is truly human, I should say. We can't sympathize with Christ and his temptation for in our lives, external temptations and internal temptations are always partnered together. External temptations and internal temptations are always partnered together. So let me exa- uh, to keep on with this analogy of us being on a good diet and we see this hamburger. Um, it's not that we have lost the love for hamburgers when we finally eat the hamburger, but we always internally, we desire to eat that hamburger. It's not as if when we saw a hamburger on television or we saw one of our friends eating a hamburger that immediately that temptation or that something ignited in us internally, something in us to eat a hamburger. But it's always been there. But when Christ was tempted in the wilderness, Christ's temptation came outside of him. The devil tempted him externally, but never could tempt him internally. And that's something, if you walk over with anything, you can, you can write that down. Satan tempted Christ uh, externally, but never tempted him internally. The external temptation from Satan was never accompanied by an inward response by Christ. As Hebrews 4.15 tells us, that the temptations that Christ experienced were without sin. That what Christ went through, the temptations were without, they were apart from sin. And saints, when we think about that, That simply doesn't mean that Christ never sinned, but he was never capable of sinning. If you want more on that, just read the Sermon on the Mount and read what sin and the definition of sin really is, what Christ says and how he defines 
what sin is. It's not the external act simply, but it's the internal response. It's the internal inclinations and motives. Donald McLeod says he was, uh, he was not tempted by anything within himself, Jesus Christ. He was not tempted by anything within himself. He was not dragged away by his own evil desire and enticed. He was, um, he was, there was no law of sin in his members. There was no disposition to sin, no love of sin. The prince of this world had no foothold on him. That is why Christ can say the devil has no hold on me. What then did the devil work on? Question mark. Part of the answer is that although Jesus had no vices, that he did, ha- that he did have a sinless human weakness. Even though Christ had no vices, he did have sinless human weaknesses. He could be tempted and clearly was through hunger, through the fear of pain, and through the love of a friend. It is not a mark of fallenness to fill these things. It's not, a, it's not a mark of fallenness for Christ to be hungry or for, or for Christ to feel the loss of a friend. And yet each of them could genuate strong pressure to deviate from the path described for him. In light of this, we can say that even though there was no possibility for Christ to sin, that doesn't undermine the genuineness and temptation that he went through. He was truly hungry. If you've ever fasted for 40, you fast for 30 minutes and you're truly hungry. 40 days, Christ is, he was tempted, or he went into the wilderness, he fasted, and he was tempted. But there was nothing internally that could lack that, the devil could latch on. And this also marks that the divine, the human will always follows the divine will. For if Christ was to turn those stones into bread, then what happens? Everything falls apart. Hebrews 4.15 tells us that Christ's temptation were real. It reads, We not have a high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. Now, AWP in commenting on that verse makes a wonderful observation. And I swear this will be the last, the last uh, quote. This text teaches that the temptation of Christ were without sin, Hear this, in their source and nature, and not merely as the passage is sometimes explains that they were without sin in their result. It doesn't mean that when Christ was tempted, the result was he was without sin. But by but but the source and the nature, the meaning is not that our Lord was tempted in every respect, respect exactly as fallen men is uh, by inward lusts as well as by other temptations only, he did not hourly yield to any temptation, meaning that Christ was not tempted the way you are. He didn't deal with lust. In fact, one pastor, he was an ex-pastor, now he's a pastor again, Mark Driscoll, he makes a shocking claim. He believes, he doesn't believe in the impeccability of Christ, he believes Christ was able to sin, and he says that, you think that Christ never looked on a woman in lust? You think that, that when Christ saw a woman that he didn't look on that woman with lust. He was a man for God's sake. That's blasphemous. That is utterly blasphemous. That's why we must hold on to the doctrine of the impeccability of Christ. Uh, we go on. But that he was tempted in every way that man is, accepting by that class of temptations that are sinful because originating in evil and forbid forbidden desire. In other words, The temptations of Christ, hear this, saints, 
were unique to him as the God-man. When we think of the temptations of Christ, they were unique to him as the mediator, as the God-man. And saints, when we consider the temptation of Christ, and when we read Hebrews 4.15, that Christ was in all points tempted as we are yet without sin, we aren't to make one-to-one connections. Meaning that we aren't to read that Christ was tempted in all points like we are yet without sin. We aren't to say that, well, the same way I'm tempted, the same way I deal with lust, the same way I deal with uh, um, um, uh, st- stealing things or wanting to rob a bank or all these, all these sinful things, breaking God's law, all those things, the same way I'm tempted is the same way Christ was tempted. Saints, you never and will never be tempted to turn stones into bread. Ever. So when we think about the temptation of Christ, they were unique to him as the mediator, as the sinless God-man. We aren't to make one-to-one connections, but also, saints, when we think about the temptations of Christ and our temptations, our temptations were never at the level of Christ's temptations. Let me tell you why. When we are tempted, we are tempted both externally and internally. And there's only a certain, there's only a certain amount of time that we can go through until we finally give in. That there's only a certain apex point that we can, that we can stomach and then we finally give in. But Christ was sinless. So he felt the full weight of temptation. The full weight of temptation. When you, when you don't give in to your temptation, or when you don't give into that, that trial and test and then that inward inclinations of sin and all that, what happens? That temptation keeps rising. It keeps rising and rising and rising and rising and, and, until you're, you wind to pull your hair out and you want to just give in. But Christ, however, felt the full weight of what it means to be tempted. So we can say that his temptations were real and genuine and unlike anything that we've ever gone through, that we will ever go through. So what is the purpose of the temptation of Christ then? Since he was incapable of sinning, what is the point of him being tempted? Well, one of the reasons was to demonstrate the impeccability of who he, of his person. There is a redemptive historical uh, meaning to it, which we might talk about next week, but one of the reasons is it was to prove or was to show, was to put on display Christ in his person. It was a show that the whole Christ... The whole Christ, his divine and human nature was truly sinless. Essentially, it was to teach us of our Savior. The temptation of Christ was to teach us of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. That he was truly, in every sense of the word, without sin. Now, why does this matter? In conclusion, our final point, why does this matter? Well, it's important to know and confess the impeccability of Christ for two reasons. First, dogmatically uh, and theologically, the impeccability of Christ is important to know and confess in order for us to have a proper Christology, in order for us to think about Jesus Christ properly, in order for us to speak of Christ rightly, then we must understand and know and confess the impeccability of Christ. And one of the things, one of the, one of, one of the, one of the things that, that, that I believe happens when we deny that christ was able to sin if we say that christ was able to sin then we fall into a camp called open theism which means that the future 
is open. Which means that if Christ could have sinned, then what does that mean for our salvation? That means that if Christ could have sinned, then the eternal plan of God could have failed. If Christ could have sinned. That's, that's what happens if we deny the impeccability of Christ, then we are denying that plan of redemption. We're denying the covenant of redemption. We're saying that it is possible then that the Trinity could have failed in salvation. It is possible then that Christ could have failed in salvation. It is possible that he could have failed in living a sinless life. See, what happens when you deny the impeccability of Christ, you start denying every aspect of salvation, but also who God is. We say that Christ is able to sin, then what are you saying about God? What are you saying about Christ and who he is in his being, that he is a divine person who added to himself a human nature? If that's the case, then could have God sinned? There's just, there's just too many trails and too many questions that we can, that, that, that come up when we if we deny that impeccability of Christ. And number two, the impeccability of Christ is important to know and confess for our salvation. The impeccability of Christ teaches us that Christ was truly sinless. It teaches us that Christ was truly perfect. Saints, it brings more focus to the purity of Christ's precious blood. But also, it brings more into focus the perfect sacrifice of Jesus Christ. That he was perfect in every sense of the word. That he was sinless in every sense of the word. That Christ is our sinless Savior. It brings a whole new meaning to that. He is our sinless Savior that not only did he never committed an act of sin, but he never had any inclination to sin, that he was never able to sin. And I don't know about you, but that's one whom I want to place my faith and trust in. I don't necessarily want one who can feel the same lust that I felt. I want one who's perfect, who is sinless, who is holy and undefiled. That's the solid rock who I want to place my faith and trust in. That's the one who I cry to and pray to, who I worship, who I adore, who I preach the gospel about. Jesus Christ. And in light of this doctrine, saints, we can put more confidence in the perfect work of Christ. We can place more faith and trust in our perfect, sinless Savior. This puts more emphasis on what Pastor Antonio spoke about this morning is Christ is so much better. He's far better than Melchizedek. He's far better than uh, Abram. He's Abraham. He's far better than Noah. How is he better? Not only that he was externally never committed to sin, but internally he was truly sinless and righteous. Not by his external acts, but who he was, who he is. And saints, the grand news of this all is one day we will be like this. One day, saints, we will be like this. Right now we are those who are not able to sin and able to sin. One day we will be those who are not able to sin. Let's pray.